This is Dangerous Vision, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Blind people certainly don't have the market cornered on perfect pitch. Is there really a link between musical talent and blindness? And some people have a kind of mystical version of this story. You know, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Now enter technology. Yeah, it's fascinating to me about disability and technology. In this week's Dangerous Vision podcast, Randy Cohen talks with Bill McCann. Everybody thinks I'm crazy on this, but here's my crazy thought, because I just like to expose people to interesting ideas that they're not used to hearing. Bill went from being a computer programmer to the founder of Dancing Dots. Technology to assist blind and low vision individuals to read, write, and record their own music. It's kind of messy, but we're made differently for a reason. Let me start with this. Uh, when did you lose your sight? Okay, well, I was born uh, legally blind. Mom had uh, a very mild case of German measles very late in her pregnancy, and it somehow induced this glaucoma. By the time I was six, my mom had lost count, I think after 19 hospitalizations, because all they could do then was bring in the hospital, take you into the operating room and try to get a, a, a needle in there and draw the fluid out. It's interesting because you're, you're having an experience that I um, may have, and in, in some ways uh, the altruistic part of me hopes to have, which is to say I have retinitis pigmentosa, so I've been losing my sight for many years, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of work going on. So there's work going on on stem cells, which might enable me to recover some sight, which would be incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a lot of work going on on gene therapy and other related things, which would m- stop the loss of sight. And, the, and, and so obviously if they give me that tomorrow, I'm going to be very, very happy because I have this tiny bit left. And if mm-hmm. I can hold on to it, it would be incredible. Mm-hmm. But if it happens sort of the day after I go down to zero, <laughs> yeah. there is a part of me that's going to be extremely irritated. And so I'm just sort of curious whether you have any uh, uh, thoughts on, uh, you know, is it more annoying um, <laughs> to have, <laughs> is it more annoying to lose, uh, to, to feel like, ah, oh, geez, I just missed it? <laughs> I, I think, sure, it would be nice. But uh, I'm not holding my breath, but I also do have that confidence that if I can live long enough and if we can, as a human race, be smart enough not to uh, destroy ourselves, um, yeah, we're going to see a lot of this come along. Yeah, well, you know, that, that, um, that's, that's so interesting because I didn't know who, the attribution for that thing about, about how we see with our brain, not our eyes. I say it all the time, uh, and I would have guessed correctly that I didn't think of it, but I didn't know uh, the source. So that's fascinating to learn. And I'm, I'm sort of keenly aware of it because I have people will ask me, you know, what I see. And it's kind of hard to describe because, mm-hmm. and then I tell them about seeing with our brains because the way it works is if I'm like in my kitchen, I see kind of, I, I don't see that abnormally because my brain is guessing what's there and it's guessing correctly. You know, it's like, uh, it's getting a little, little signals that say that looks like a refrigerator. And then my brain also knows where my refrigerator is. And so then I correctly am sort of seeing a refrigerator. But then if you put me in a dark restaurant, you know, I may uh, think that, you know, the thing in front of me is my, you know, uh, whatever is, is, is the butter dish. And, and, you know, in fact, it's, uh, I don't know, an astrayer or something completely other, you know, it's a person's nose. I don't know. Yeah. And so, um, so it's, 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 uh, it's, it's really true. And so, but the, the other thing that, um, that your comment about, uh, about the brain port, which is so interesting, got me thinking about is this, um, this topic of blind people and music, right? Because I feel like in my life, I've read both versions of the story. There's a story that says, um, uh, the blind people have a superior facility for music. Mm-hmm. And some people have a kind of mystical version of this story, yes. you know, when God closes a door, he opens a window, that kind of story. And other people have a brain plasticity version where they say, well, you know, the brain remaps uh, the part that would have been used for vision for other purposes. But then uh, just as often, you'll read people that say, no, 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 it's just as simple 
as like, well, if, if you're blind, you know, you're not going to be a professional squash player, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you're not going to be a neurosurgeon. And so, you know, you start to focus your energies on the areas where being blind doesn't hold you back so much. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on blind people in music. And I'm also interested in what got you into programming, because I did a lot of coding when I was younger and just had what we might call very, very, very bad eyesight. Uh, but as I've sort of crossed the boundary into legally blind, I don't do much coding anymore because I find it, um, you know, it's really hard. There's an error and I have to go and kind of figure out where in the code the error is. And of course, I can have my computer read things out loud to me, but it doesn't do a good job reading code language, you know, because it doesn't want to read letter by letter. It wants to try mm-hmm. to turn them into words and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So so tell me your thoughts on you pick which to do first, but, you know, blindness <laughs> in music and blindness in computer programming. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, blindness and music thing, I, I don't know. There are probably people who have dedicated a lot more structured uh, uh, research to this question. And, and I, I don't really know. It's, it's, it, it is a bit mysterious, but there are, I think, if I, if, I, if I can believe what I've heard, that there are a higher percentage of blind people who... Let's turn off my iPhone. Okay. <laughs> uh, there are a higher percentage of people who who are blind who have perfect pitch, for example. Uh, well, that's interesting. But there are a lot of sighted people who have perfect pitch. So uh, blind people certainly don't have the corner uh, mm-hmm. market cornered on perfect pitch and for people who don't know what that is that is like if somebody walked up and just played a note or sang a note you would know oh that's c sharp or do you have perfect pitch it's funny some days i do have perfect pitch i think (laughs) really good pitch memory i can remember certain songs and how they sounded and then i hear something that sounds like that song whereas i have other friends who uh blind and sighted actually who you know they don't need a reference. You could just you could just sit on the piano, and they could tell you which keys you just sat on. I mean, it's crazy. wow. So, <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't know blindness and, and music. Yeah, there seems to be a higher percentage, and it would make sense that maybe you tune into music at an earlier age when your brain is more plastic, if you will, uh, like under the age of six, where we know that. Um, People have a much greater facility for languages at that point in your life. Um, So that makes sense to me. But I don't don't pretend to be an expert on that. But I can – wait, you had a part two. What Part two is about is about um, computer programming and blindness because that that was an interesting thing to choose as a blind person. I and like uh, and curious as to a what made you make that choice, b your experience of it, and whether you felt like it held you back, uh, or whether in fact you thought it's just like oh, of course, computer programming should be high on the list of careers for blind people, and uh, and whether you've encountered other blind programmers and all that. Yeah, I've known a lot of guys who are blind to do programming. What got me into it was money, pretty much. I mean, to be crass about it, I mean, when you're you're young and idealistic or old and idealistic, you want to think that, hey, I have a certain skill. I'm a musician. I can play. I can sing. I can compose. I can arrange. And so I should be able to actually put food on my table by doing that. But then you start to realize that there are certain skills that society pays more for. And one of them was programming. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I really got into it was that I had a, a rehab counselor. And as, as those of you who listen to this uh, know, if you've ever had a rehab counselor, their job is to get you a job so they can close your case and turn you into a mm-hmm. taxpayer, right? So right. My guy was like, "Okay, we got you a music degree, but you know, you're still you're still not um, self-supporting. What about computer programming? You know?" And mm. I had never even thought of it, but he said, "Go down there and take the test." It was like a college boards kind of test. And I always did well in school, and you know, I, I did very well in the test. And they said, "We think you can do this." And I thought, again, it was like, "Well, wait, this does not really fit in with Plan A." But on the other hand, mm-hmm. if I could make enough money to support my music habit, maybe this would be good. I could 
get a day job. And, and that's kind of what happened. I, uh, you know, I got a day job, it paid pretty well. And I, and I got to the luxury of going out and playing on the weekends and not worrying so much if I only, you know, came home and got paid 40 bucks for something, you know, it was just like, okay. Um, now were you working, were you coding inside a software package that read aloud to you what you'd written and stuff oh, like that? Yeah, How was that yeah. working? The first, <clears throat> first thing I got was a talking terminal. It was a hardwired, um, HP terminal that Dean Blasey had hardwired for speech. This was back in 1981. Huh. And, um, in fact, uh, his company was Maryland Computer Services, and we had a rep from Maryland Computer Services uh, who would come and, and see us every few weeks, uh, a very smart young man by the name of Ted Henter. And Ted Henter went on to start the company that gave us JAWS for Windows because wow. Ted and Dean reached a point, um, I mean, they're still good buddies, but at, at that time, Ted was saying, you know what, we need to make software do this. And Dean was saying, no, the hardware, the hardware talking is fine. But anyway, it looks like Ted had it right. But, um, but at the time we had this machine that would talk. And the funny thing was, you know, I was coding in COBOL and the COBOL is very structured. And the first line of every COBOL program has to have to say identification division with a period after the word division. Okay. And I still remember the day that Ted came in with a software update for us, for our terminals, or I guess it was firmware update. But anyway, he got the thing. <laughs> so I'll still remember the day it said identification division, because up until then, it, it, you would read the first line, it would say I-D-E-N-T-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. <laughs> and you feel like spelling everything. And it took forever but yeah, um, the tools got better as we went along. But your point about debugging your code is a good one. Even today, um, like I haven't done any coding for a while myself, probably years, because Albert is a, a better programmer than I am. Um, so I tend to do the sales and marketing and maybe be come up with some of the ideas. And, and he's more of the coder and tech support guy and... Uh, all around great support person. But, um, but yeah, the debugging tools, I don't know. I'd, it'd be interesting to talk to someone who's like doing it uh, right now as a blind guy. But I mean, even when I was coding some of the, some of the software I was coding back, I don't know, 15 years ago, we had, we had a couple nice things where like you could step through your code. So you could, you could evaluate, okay, I think right now this switch should be set to on or yes or whatever, and you, you know, it might be one, and then you'd press F8 and it would, it would execute your next line of code, and then you could say, okay, did that statement cause the yes to flip to no? And, you know, you could, mm -hmm. you could kind of check the values. Um, when, I was, when I was coding for Sudoku, I never had any of that stuff. Maybe some other people, mm -hmm. some of that. But I, I mean, I was, I just have to sit at my desk and say, and read each line and think about it. Like, okay, if I were a computer, what would I do now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me, while we're on tools, let me ask you a question. Obviously your software, which we'll talk more about in a, in a few minutes, Dancing Dots is, is a tool for, for the vision impaired, but I always like to ask people about just in either your personal or career life, whether uh, there are any tools and that could be uh, physical products that could be um, uh, software, it could be phone apps. Uh, is there anything that like, you're like, just kind of want to shout it to the rooftops to everybody who has vision impairment that like, you should try out this product or think about trying out this product because you know there have been a few things uh that have been complete game changers uh in in my life that you know i learned about because somebody was nice enough to tell me so one sure. of our missions here at dangerous vision is to share that kind of information sure well i mean i, I probably would come as no surprise that i would i would say that the the iphone for me has been that game changer um as as something that's really versatile um and what i found that um there, there are cer certain things like my bank, for example, where 
using JAWS with my Windows PC uh, and going to their website is actually better than using the app that they publish. Mm. But, but the other day, like, I like to fly on Southwest. I do a fair amount of traveling for my business. And I like Southwest Airlines, but I don't like their website. And they mm -hmm. publish a phone number that blind people can call because they know their website is horrible. I don't know how they <laughs> and why they don't fix it. But anyway, but good news department. I downloaded their Southwest Airlines app on my iPhone and I booked my own ticket the other day by mm -hmm. myself. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that was really exciting. So sometimes I would say, like if you if you're trying to access a website, try the app. Or if you're using the app and it's not doing it, try the website because sometimes one is more accessible than the other. And um, you know, I I just and then of course you know if neither one works, you call them and, and you complain and say it's not accessible. And please, will you help me because you you need to help me because I can't use your your stuff. Mm -hmm. you um, even right from the start, they were mainstreaming the students uh, across the street in the parish school with all the sighted kids. So ah. when I got there, I started in the school like with just 40 or 50 blind kids. No, the thing about Braille is this. Yes, lots of things can talk. It's fantastic. But um, you still can't read in a way that, in a very intimate way. In other words, let's say you had a kid who's 20, 20. Mm -hmm. You have a five-year-old kid. He goes off to kindergarten. He comes home and he says, Daddy, I learned to read today. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Here, read this to me. Oh, no, I can't read that stuff. Well, how'd you learn to read? Well, my computer uh, read me a story. Mm -hmm. And I can click on a big button that, that <laughs> what I want to read, and then I listen to the story. Well, that's all good. But you're not really reading. True. And I get emails from blind guys all the time, and I can tell they don't read Braille mm -hmm. because they spell, and they haven't figured out that there's a spell checker on the computer. But anyway. Uh, yeah, no, that is that is interesting. It does occur to me that, like, that's right. If you just learn it by, I mean, look, I read constantly. I read like three books a week, and I read them just by listening to it in voice. And it feels yeah. to me the same way that reading on paper used to feel, right? Uh, but it's true that I learned how to read and I learned how to spell, and I'm, you know, and so, and mm -hmm. you're right that if I had learned to read just by clicking the button, uh, then that's right. You don't really have any sense of what letters are and how they how they fit together. Um, it's sort of interesting, right? We may discover that learning to read and that process is really important to our brain development and stuff, that without it, you know, other things don't happen that would be good to have happen. No doubt about it. And, you know, there have been studies that I've heard of where when people read Braille with their fingers, they actually stimulate the, the visual cortex in their brain. Huh. Uh, I know myself, I, when I, if I, if I'm talking to you, I don't know if this is just my brain, but if I'm talking to you, I can see the braille of every word I say in my brain. Huh. Um, and if I think really hard, I can see the print because I did learn my print um, when I before, before I lost before my you lost it. But uh, you know, braille is awesome. And here's the other thing: uh, interesting story. I was at, I go to a lot of conferences, and there are a lot of teachers of the blind. So. I have this table with all this, my computer and my Braille display and a musical keyboard and all our software. And I happen to have my slate and stylus on the, on the uh, table. This teacher of the visually impaired actually came up. So like, what are you doing with this thing? <laughs> I said, well, what are you doing with a pencil in your purse? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a great invention and high tech doesn't mean that low tech isn't any good anymore. Yeah. You know, you, I can take this little pointed stylus and I can make a note to myself in Braille. I don't need any batteries. I don't need any screens. I don't need any voice. So get, give me a sense of the the time, because I'm sure, you know, that there will be people listening to this who, like me, have never had the experience. Of, I mean, 
so when I could see to read, I read about one page a minute of a paperback book, right? If I was reading a spy novel or something. So that's, I guess, yeah. 300 words a minute or something like that. And now I read by voice a little faster than that. Um, do people read that fast in Braille? I mean, it's one letter at a time, right? Are there special characters for common words or something? Or is it just one letter at a time? Forgive my idiocy. Forgive my idiocy on this, but I've you know I've been I've been waiting to ask about this stuff for 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 fifty years. So <laughs> okay, well, no, I mean, well, prints one letter at a time too, right? But you you learn to recognize them as groups mm-hmm. and words, and phrases and stuff. So, but there is contracted braille. Okay, let's say space, and so it's, it's sort of like like common words. Oh, and like B stand a uh, single B could but C's can D is do F is from mm-hmm. E is ever and it goes on. Um, so that helps, but I can read. I I say that I could probably read. I can read Braille out loud naturally naturally enough that you couldn't tell I was reading. Okay, that's interesting. Right. So so at least you can read as fast as talking speed, which is pretty fast. And and uh, I could probably read it faster. I just yeah. can't tell that fast. Yeah. That's interesting. And and so yeah. and 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 writing, like again, it feels like so you're making so to make a letter you make between one and six dots. Is that is that the right way to think of it? That it's like a dominant? Yeah, like I use the slate and stylus in school. So I, I used to there was one class I had for political science in high school and the guy just talked all the time and expected you to take notes. He would not hand out his notes. Mm -hmm. You had to take I used to walk out of there and my hand all like crippled up because I would (laughs) take notes. But you know now we have these cool devices with six key entry and you can just kind of you know press the keys you want for the dots you want and it's all software driven and it's, Mm. it's, it's a lot easier. But you know writing is is yeah, I can I can write um, pretty quickly with with six dots, six key entry. Um, but here's the thing: speaking of Braille, you know Louis Braille was uh, a French teenager. He he lost his sight when he was three in an accident in his father's workshop in suburban Paris, what would be suburban Paris today. And uh, but he was actually mainstream. He went to his local parish school and the, and the local priest taught him until he was 10. And then there was a school, the very first school for the blind in Paris um, was opened in the 1790s. And Louis showed up there at the age of 10 at eight, in 1819. And at, up until then, they were taking uh, letters and making like really big print letters Ah, that you would uh, feel. You would like feel the R. You would or, feel. Uh-huh. Yeah. It took, it, which it, I which sometimes saves me. Sometimes like in the men's room, they'll have men yeah. written out in big letters and I can that's feel right. that. And that's very yes. helpful to me. Thank you it to is. all the people who print those signs. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I, I've, I've felt them too. Um, but usually in, uh, underneath there's there's a tiny little – There's a braille little, below it, which I don't know what braille, to do with yeah. exactly. Right. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, so Louis Braille, um, he – he actually was shown that stuff. And then when he was like 14 or 15, this French army officer came in to share with the director his idea for something called night writing. And he had made this tactile code for passing messages in the dark because he reasoned like, you know, you don't want to light uh, giving away your position in the field. Mm-hmm. So you can pass messages that people can read. Well, it really failed with the soldiers. They couldn't feel it. Or they didn't care, but he th- he thought very correctly. Let's let's see if blind kids can do this, blind students, blind people. And anyway, it was a tactile code. It had dots and dashes. It was very complex. It was phonetic too. Mm-hmm. So you got the sound of the word, but you didn't know how to spell it. Anyway, Louis Brown and his the director said, "Well, give it to the kid. I have this smart kid, Louis Brown here, and his and his buddies. So they took it and they." simplified it and made it a literal code and only eventually braille came down to six dots but anyway by the time he was 20 he published his what he called the procedure which was entitled uh, a system for the blind to read text arithmetic and music so music was right in there because he was a very musical guy 
Um, so, you know, he published that when he was ripe old age of 20. Yeah. And changed the world, you know, that's yeah, all. It's impressive. Well, well, so music is exactly where I wanted to go next because I'm trying to picture. So you've got the staff and, and again, my, my musical knowledge, not so deep. I mean, I adore music, but, but, and I, I learned to read music when I was young to play the clarinet for a few years, but you know, I don't know much, but so what I'm picturing is there's the staff. So there's kind of all this, um, uh, high and low stuff. And then there's the sort of quarter eighth, all that. And, and it feels like too many dimensions. Right. It feels like you've got like, I don't know, 10 or 20 notes that you could be playing and then and then half a dozen mm-hmm. lengths. So is is the point that you need two or three Braille characters to capture one note or how does that go? Well, your instincts are right. In fact, Braille developed the six dot code for text in response to that problem with, you know, big raised letters. Mm-hmm. He also same reasoning for trying to look at uh, staff notation, even when people went to the huge expense and time and trouble to take a five-line staff and raise these notes, which looked very big to the eye and felt very small to the finger. He realized this staff notation is fine if you can see it, but the human finger cannot take in that amount of information in that amount of space. Mm-hmm. So what he did was, he took his six-dot code, and if you take six dots, you can make 64 unique combinations of those six dots or any any right. set that has six things in it, right? Exactly. Two to the six is 64 for our uh, yeah. readers who uh, like uh, mathematical notation. Okay. For you, for you math nerds out there. Yeah, so, that's me. <laughs> yeah. So, so he, he was able to take that and devise a system – where the top four dots he would combine uh, to make seven unique patterns that would show us the seven degrees of the Western scale, okay. the right? Right. And he would take the bottom two dots and combine them to show the different duration of the note. So under the tip of your finger, mm-hmm. you know the pitch and you know how long to play it. And, and don't we need sharp and flat? And don't you sometimes go through more than one yes. octave in a composition? Yep, and and he built his code out to be very, uh, very comprehensive, so that you do have uh, sharps and flats and ties and accents, and you when you see a braille score, you see everything that the composer thought important to put on the page. You're not just mimicking someone who was reading the page, and you're once removed from the information. And if they decided. They didn't care. And I know it says crescendo or accent or slow down here, mm-hmm. but I'm going to disregard that. You're only as good as what you hear them do. Mm. Where if you have the Braille score, you have all the information and then you can decide what you want to do. Uh, I, I like to joke, but it's really true. Like when I was waiting, when I was in my high school band and even in, in college when I was listening and, and I didn't have my Braille score yet, when I got the Braille score, I realized I had memorized the mistakes of the kid next to me perfectly. So, you know, you get the information. Information is power. Here's your Braille score. Now, you have to decide whether you want to learn to observe all that stuff that somebody went to the trouble of putting down in the score, or you just want to get kind of the right notes in the right order. Um, But the information is all there. And his system was really very... uh, I still think his system for Braille music, or just music, his system for music is is the most elegant and economical way to get the information quickly. Like our software built on Louis Braille's work, and you can see Braille music on the Braille display, but you can also hear the computer play the note, and you can hear the software verbally describe the note, and that's wonderful. It's like a multimedia presentation of the score. And and if you're sighted, you can see the staff notation on the screen. So it's all mm-hmm. it's all synced <laughs> up in it. But with all that, by the time I hear the screen reader say middle C half note slurred, yeah. I I I can touch it and I know all that instantly. Right. I mean <clears throat> virtually. So you know, um I I think I think Braille music, I think, 
well, Braille is one of my heroes, if you haven't picked up on that mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, just an amazing mind. And and one of the people who literally changed the whole, he was the game, he was like the iPhone of the 19th century. His His code was the thing that really just kind of rocked the world for, for blind people and got them to where they could be literate and, and go on and do lots of other things. But I mean, it all started with his idea of, all right, the human, I mean, well-meaning sighted people want us to try to get information the way they get it with their eye using our fingers. That doesn't work. You have to find a new way. So let me make sure I understand what the software does. So in other words, so um, Say there's a musical score. It's uh, it's printed out. I buy I buy the um, uh, the the score for um, you know guys and dolls. And so yeah. now I've got that music. And now <clears throat> is the idea that um, I'm going to scan that in, and then it's going to print something on a special Braille printer that's a page of bumps, and then the per- the person can use that page to read the score. Is that how I should be thinking of this? That's one way. Yeah, you can make a hard copy Braille score, which is what I got back in the mail from my wonderful volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are these machines people call Braille printers. They're technically called embossers. They they can attach as a hardware peripheral to your computer, and you can send them information, and they can uh, emboss raised dots on a piece of paper. And our software can send the, those machines um, the information for a Braille score. Okay. But uh, we connected with uh, a, uh, a very smart man named Dr. Lippold Hawken years ago. And Lippold uh, made a software called Lime, which I finally found. He finally told me it's Lippold's interactive music editor, but huh. you know, made Lime. And then it was like your thing with the, you know, the Pat Stakes. Right. <laughs> uh, Lime, <laughs> Lime became, you know, this thing with a funny looking Lime on the screen. But anyway... So we built, we integrated Goodfeel, which is our Braille music software, into Lime. And so Lime show, Lime's like the word processor for music. It's like the Microsoft Word for music notation. And when you run Lime, you, you know, where when you open up a Word document, you type in characters and words and phrases. In Lime, you type in notes and bars and measures of music and phrase, musical phrases. And it's there on the screen for sighted guys to read in what they know, which is staff notation. But what we did, Albert and I, um, we were able to take that information and send it to our Goodfield software, which can now run in the background. So every time you hit an arrow key and you're you're moving through your Lime score, Lime's saying, hey, Goodfield, what's this? And Goodfield takes, takes the um, rules of Braille music and sh- puts those Braille dots on a display called a paperless braille display that's that was the, that was what i wanted to ask is that exists is there some kind yeah. of like plastic sheet where the bumps pop up for you or something yeah yeah they so pop cool. up and down i have my hand on one right now so you don't, don't even know. have to move your hand it just it'll run through the dots at the speed at the speed you choose you don't have to like well, slide can, across you it listen, you can listen back and, and read from left to right but when you run out when it, when you run out of line the software will bring you to the next line. An accessible music technology for the visually impaired, where you can read, create, practice, and perform. All right, so let's see. All right, so now I'm getting the picture level. with that, and now here's the part uh, that I can't figure out, and that I've been dying to. So you're in the orchestra, and it's time for you to play your trumpet part at the crucial moment. And now you're reading the score, and now you're playing the trumpet one-handed. Is that right? Or the violinist is playing the violin one-handed? Do you put your braille machine under your big toe? Is that the idea? When I did play in orchestras and bands and things, I would have the Braille score on my music stand. Mm-hmm. Not I could read it while I play, but, you know, sometimes you memorize a long piece and you're resting for eight measures and you're thinking, when I come back in, was that where I played right. this? So you, with a Braille score, you can grab it while you're resting and look at it and refresh your memory. And, and, and so it's like, it's like, having a net under the tightrope, you know, uh, you can't do that with a recording. You can't, or not very practically, you know, you just, 
you're, you're there in the moment. Mm -hmm. So you can, but, um, the point is that Braille is Braille music is there. Uh, you can memorize the score and you are memorizing the score. You're not memorizing again. Like you're not mimicking someone who may or may not have played it right. You are getting the information, synthesizing it and playing it the way you want to play it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So memorizing is, is a big part of it. And now we have a, a, a similar product for people with low vision to magnify the notes in the Lime software and make them really big mm. and scroll in ways that favor the way low vision people want to see things. After the work is done, it's time to perform with confidence because you know the score. Dancing Dots, where music meets technology for the blind and low vision I, I, <laughs> I was hanging out with uh, a former colleague of yours today, our, uh, our executive director at, uh, at Mass Association for the Blind, uh, uh, Sassy Atwater-Wright. And uh, so Sassy, Sassy said she interned with you many years ago, and she says hi. And she said... Yeah, hey. wow. <laughs> and uh, she's doing amazing. And she's an incredible person. Just, uh, I, I'm going to have her on the podcast at some point. And, uh, and she said, oh, well, you know, you got to ask him for, his, uh, for a good uh, Stevie Wonder story. So oh. now... A good buddy of mine had done a lot of work for him as a recording engineer. So when he came to town, we went to the show and loved the show. And then we went backstage to say hello. And then we got invited to hang out. And we were I was hanging out with him. Um, and he had uh, an Apple uh, computer in his dressing room and a musical keyboard. And he was showing me how somebody had made some software to like, okay, if you pre pre uh, press semicolon, we'll record and I'll play on the keyboard. And then, so I was typing and he was playing on the keyboard. It was so exciting, you know, and, and, uh, and I was pressing like press P and it'll play it back. And I was like, yeah, but nothing was talking. Nothing was talking. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying to myself, okay, this is all good. But what happens when he says press, you know, Q and what he thought was going to happen doesn't happen. Then what do we do? Mm -hmm. So eventually it happened. He said, you know, hit the slash key or whatever. And then whatever we thought was going to happen did not happen. And I said, okay, aha. And he turned around and grabbed somebody and said, hey, what does it say on the screen? And then I realized the difference between me and Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. He's always going to have a guy that he can grab <laughs> say, hey, what does it say on the screen? It doesn't matter if it's like 3.30 in the morning. He's going to have that person. I am not going to have that person. Mm. And so one reason maybe why I made the software I did and he made records. He made the music he did, exactly. <laughs> what he should do. But, um, but you know, that was kind of fun to, to, to meet him. And then over the years um, at conferences like the CSUN conference, since he had a house in L.A., he would always come in and, see what was going on. Hmm. We'll always come in our booth <clears throat> and bring like 50 of his best friends and nobody could literally move. And he would always say like, yeah, what do you guys got? <laughs> <laughs> Show him something, but then some pretty girl would come along and then, you know, or somebody else would come along and say this or that, or one of his security guys, but I don't know. So we had never talk and he'd always say, well, here's my number. Give me a call. <clears throat> you know, cause I love this. I love what you're doing. And you know, Cool. And so then I'd call him and then he wouldn't call me back. And then the next year would happen again. It was like the swallows and Capistrano, you know, like mm -hmm. it was like an event. And then I then I, I got to know Mike May, who I was talking about earlier, mm -hmm. and Mike is such an interesting guy, but he and Stevie really are buds. Like like show business, so everybody's like, Yeah, a friend of mine, Stevie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He really is a friend of Mike's, you know, like like they really are friends. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike told me once they had dinner together, Steve turned off his phone and an hour and a half later, he turned on his phone and he had 250 new messages. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's why he didn't call me back. Yeah. So, um, you know, when he's with you, he's with you. And he, and he really is a very warm, nice person. Mm. But like when he's not with you, he's with the next person. Yeah. You know? And, um, 
It's probably a good way to live. <laughs> that is really cool. Well, you know, thinking thinking about Stevie that makes me think of another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is about musical improvisation. Now, you know, there's this old quote attributed to many different people. I think Laurie Anderson titled an album uh, uh, by it, uh, you know, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you I'm gonna ask you to do the the seemingly impossible and talk about musical improvisation. The reason Stevie Wonder makes me think of it is probably my. Probably, it depends on what day you catch me, but probably my all-time favorite song kind of uh, integrated over my life, as the mathematicians would say, is, is uh, Superstition by Stevie Wonder. And, you know, at that time, of course, uh, that, that song is dominated by the, the synthesizer. I think it's called a clavinet or something that, that, um, yeah, that he uh, used. Yeah. And, and I read an article once that said that sort of at the, around the time he was recording that, like Chaka Khan was recording in the studio next door. So he kind of wandered by, and then they cooked up this song that's also one of my, you know, like 30 favorite songs of all time, Tell Me Something Good. Yep. And, you know, Steve's just sort of noodling around and creates this thing out of nothing. And you're a trumpeter and I and I knew, you know, you said you play jazz and, and just this concept of people just kind of performing together and just say, oh, he's doing that with the drums and this guy's doing that. I'm going to do this and it's all going to flow together. I, I just can't. It's so beyond my comprehension. And uh, is there anything you can say to me and our audience to help us understand how you do it and how that works? Probably not. <laughs> Um, (laughs) are there rules is the idea that buried down in there that 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 you guys know kind of the rules and somebody's doing certain things and so you know aha if he's doing that i need to do a scale up that's going to work together or is it all gut instinct i guess that's kind of i'm trying to figure out whether there's an intellectual element that if i worked hard enough and were smart enough i could eventually learn or comprehend or whether it really is just something that either you feel it or, or you don't but the thing about inspiration is is a mystery and someone once said that a mystery is something about which you can always know more. And so I take that with, with music that it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, one of the most fun things I've shared with people over the last few years, and maybe I'll send you a recording of this if you guys want to work in a, a, a bit, but I, I, I was yeah. at home and I was playing a little tune on the piano and it was just a fun little tune. And suddenly I started thinking about the words and I don't know what came from the words or the idea or whatever. Anyway, I ended up writing this song that's fun to share. It's called The Glorious Dream, The Ballad of the Google Car. And it's about a blind guy dreaming of the first time he got into a Google <laughs> so Car by himself and went for a ride. Glorious dream, my horizons are boundless. And although I am sightless, I command all I can't see. The faster I'm speeding along, there's concern for contusions in this world of illusions. Could this be happening to me? I am riding in my Google car. There's nobody driving. On the road all alone, just potholes, Siri and me. So interesting to ponder. Well, well so this this uh, this will bring us to the book part. I'll, I'll give my book recommendation first because it's right on this topic, which is... um. The best book I've read in the last six months is a nonfiction book called Astral Weeks. Uh, it's about the Van Morrison album Astral Weeks, which, um, you know, as a person who I, I, I'll, I'll confess to not having a really anything remotely like a proper appreciation for jazz, but, you know, he did this sort of rock album with just enough jazz uh, in it to blow my mind without scaring me away. And uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the album, maybe this month or three months ago or, or whatever, uh, which is incredible to me. 
me, although it's it hasn't been fifty years since I got I bought I bought it in the um, in the I guess around nineteen eighty seven or eighty eight, uh, and uh, and it's uh, uh, the, there's a lot of fascinating history behind the album and the players on it and everything. And most of the most of the book is not really about the creation of the album. It's about the environment. It happens that it most of it takes place in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I'm sitting now. Um, uh, well, I guess I'm actually right across the river sure. in Austin, but but it, right in this area. And um, and so that that part is fascinating just to read about the scene here and all this stuff. Anyway, it's it's a superb book, and anybody who well anybody who loves the album Master Weeks, it's a must read. Anybody who loves music generally uh, or is interested in in Boston uh, or anything really, I recommend it. One of the many books I've read lately is uh, A Year in Space by Scott. Kelly. I think it's called Endurance, A Year in Space. And it's a very interesting book about the first guy who, who mm. spends an entire year in wakelessness and the things that are going on in his head, things going on in the space station, and the things that are going on in, down on Earth during that year. Um, and it wasn't that many years ago. I think it was 2011. Um so I thought that was a really fascinating book. Um, All right. So my, my unreasonable, unfair question that I ask everybody is, do you have any views, any opinions about anything in the world that you feel like, yeah, everybody thinks I'm crazy on this, but here's my crazy thought. Because I just like to expose people to interesting ideas that they're not used to hearing. This whole idea is fascinating to me about disability and technology and how it's all tied in with <laughs> our uniqueness, it, it would be such a boring world if God made everybody the same. If we all looked the same, talked the same, thought the same, you know, we're we're complementary. Mm -hmm. We're we're I think by design, it's messy, as you said. There's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be factions, whatever. It's kind of messy, but we're made differently for a reason. So getting into the disability part of this is this. Okay, you're blind. And until mm -hmm. we had Braille, somebody had to read to you if you wanted to read. Uh, until we had computers, uh, you know, somebody had to you know, type your email. Or so as we get more and more things that we can do on our own, the question is this. Is it making us closer to people or further apart? So we're less dependent, right? The technology can solve some of our problems, but it means by not being as dependent on on one another that uh you know, it's funny. There's a there's a line in um, in the David Mamet movie House of Games where Joe Montana plays a con man, and he said, "I'm a confidence man. What does that mean? Because you give me your confidence and I take advantage of you? No, it's because I give you my confidence, right? Yeah. And then he basically goes and plays this con on someone where he he essentially offers to take a risk on on the other guy, which the other guy does. It ends up not needing, and then of course the other guy uh, has confidence in him. And so so there is, I think, this powerful notion that uh, when you have some dependency, and uh, I mean, look, I will say this, sometimes people say, what's it like being blind? I'm like, well, what I've learned is how incredibly nice people are. You know, like when they see that you need them, they really come through in amazing ways. Not every person and not every time, but most people, most of the time. And, uh, and so you're right, it's probably drawn me closer to a lot of people, the fact that I need them so much. And now maybe I'm crazy and they're all pissed at me that, I, that, I, that, I, that, I, that they're forced to do things for me, but I, I don't think so. I don't think well, so. And, no. I, and look, I do try hard. Mm -hmm. I do try hard to take the things that I'm good at and make it up to them or make it up to other people in a sort of pay it forward sense that maybe I can't fully help, you know, uh, uh, make up to the people who do the most for me because they're so wonderful. But I try to do good things for other people and hope that it all balances out in a karmic sense. Exactly. And I think that's what I'm getting at, where if we got to a point where, you know, disabled people could compensate to the extent that they didn't quote unquote need anyone. What does that do? Like I, technology is so great, but take disability out of the equation. Um, technology can unite us and really put us in touch in whole new ways, or it can completely alienate us and put us in a room by ourselves. I mean, when you, when you look at a group of kids, um, like at a bus stop anymore, 
they're all on the phone. Like they're talking mm-hmm. to each other. They are somehow the people who are not there become more important than the people who are there. Personally, mm-hmm. I guess maybe I don't know. Maybe it's a generational thing. I just have a yeah, but what? But what if? What if that's okay? What? What if what's going on here? I mean, look, I, I write about basketball, and people will sometimes say to me, uh, "Well, Randy, I don't understand. You can't see the games." Now, obviously, it helps that I used to be able to see, so I know, and I played lots of basketball when I was younger, right. badly, but I played right. it, and so I know what's going on on a bad. If, if somebody says, "Oh, you know, he he pulls a sham god on him," I know what they're talking about, and so forth. Right. So, so that that, but but fundamentally, and then I'll I'll say to them, look. Uh, in, in when Babe Ruth was a star, virtually no one ever got to see Babe Ruth play. Maybe maybe a couple times in a lifetime, you got to go see a game at Yankee Stadium. Maybe you saw newsreel footage. Yes. Mostly what people did was they listened on the radio and they mm-hmm. read about it in the newspaper, right? Yeah. That was their experience of Babe Ruth. And that's the experience I'm having of Joel Embiid of the Sixers, right? Um, but in other words, my notion is that just because I'm not seeing it doesn't mean my experience is less legitimate. So, but what if the kids were to say that to us? They said, you old fogies don't get it, right? right. You, you're acting like physically being there is somehow what's important. But my emotional connection through my texting or Twitter or whatever with my friends is every bit as profound and real as the emotional connection you have when you're sitting across the, the table at a diner with somebody, you know, in your old fogeyish diner eating ways, yeah. right? Why shouldn't uh-huh. I sit at my home and have my avocado toast and my friend sits at, at her home, you know, having her sushi and then we're communicating via these electronic things and why is that somehow less legitimate? And um, it's not a terrible argument, right? No, it's not. And and this is why this, this whole thing is fascinating to me in this particular area. But I really do want us to have conversations about how it is that disability and technology, um, inter, the interplay there, and how it makes us closer, potentially, and how it makes us further apart. I think that's great. Well, I think I think on that note, we should end. This has been a fantastically interesting conversation from my personal perspective. If the listeners disagree, they're crazy. Uh, I really, really appreciate, Bill, you're taking the time to talk to me today. This has been just uh, just tremendously enjoyable, so thank you. my trusty white cane. It's called a Google car. They say it's You're listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired.